At Startup Health, we are trying to look at what issues are facing not just us in America, but uh, globally, um, that we need to focus a spotlight on. And there, our next guest has done exactly that on so many topics, is focusing a spotlight on it. Um, most of you, I know, are familiar with him as the chief medical correspondent for CNN. He's a uh, multiple Emmy award-winning journalist. He is a practicing neurosurgeon, and when I say practicing, sometimes I call him and, and a nurse will answer, and he's in the OR. So when he's not on TV, he's actually practicing medicine, keeping his finger on the pulse of what's going on. Um, he served as one of 15 White House uh, fellows and was a medical advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's wrote, written multiple books and happens to be writing, which hopefully maybe he'll tell us a little bit about the book he's writing now. Um, so just to set it up, I, as we launch this um, addiction moonshot, opioid and addiction moonshot, um, we, it really is a result of the challenge that, actually I should say, teaches me not to ask a question to Sanjay when we're at a conference because he challenged me and this literally did grow out of that challenge. Um, but I wanted to share with you just a little, a brief little introductory video to sort of help us understand um, his dedication and his, um, his passion for what's going on with addiction and opioids. So. If we can roll the video. We've been investigating the impact of prescription drug overdoses in America for some time on this program. As you may know, someone dies every 19 minutes in this country because of such an overdose. It's the number one thing somebody under the age of 35 is going to die from in my state. Beats out car accidents. If you're not paying attention to that, then you have no right to represent anybody. They can go by the street names, China White or China Girl, or the more scientific names, Actic, Duragesic. Most know it as fentanyl. It is so powerful that just a quarter of a milligram can be fatal. You know, it's interesting, this, this whole issue seems to have stirred up a lot of controversy, uh, Zohydra. The, your own advisory panel voted 11 to 2 against it. Um, what, what are we missing here? Why are those folks wrong on this issue? What you're looking at is pretty shocking. A heroin addict overdoses. Her name is Liz. She's been using drugs since she was 11. Another sternal rub. Another shot of Narcan. And finally, Liz begins to come too. Nasal naloxone Narcan, the overdose reversal antidote, is available weekly at all LTC meetings. It's one of those things that you know you can't believe that you're signing up for this, but the reality is if you have an addict, you should have Narcan. Consider this, in 2012, there were 259 million prescriptions written for opioid painkillers, nearly enough for every American adult and child to have their own bottle of pills. Look, we need to treat pain, but we also don't need to treat everything with the pill. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome my friend Sanjay Gupta. Oh my right. goodness. I am excited to be here. Thank you. I, we, we are so excited to have you. Thank you. I, you know, you guys get to do some really good work and the, the fact that we would have this conversation and then it might lead to something like this with all of you is it's very gratifying. So oh, I appreciate well, thank it. you. And, and it really was. I mean, when we were at, at that conference and uh, I actually s stood up, asked a question, we talked about the question and I sat back down and I don't know if you remember, you said, eh, Dr. Krine, stand back up. And I had to literally stand back up and he's like, I'm going to challenge you. I said, you got this thing called startup health. There's some like really big health problems and I hear people talking about them all the time, but it seems to me that you're the guys that actually want to then try and fix them or do something about them. 
Here, here's one that you can really sink your teeth into. So, I, I, again, it's very gratifying. I think these are the things we'll remember as we get older, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for inspiring us to do this. The amazing thing is, um, as a practicing physician, uh, I have to say, this is actually embarrassing to admit, I thought I understood what was going on. Um, and it wasn't, it was after that conference, and uh, I went home and I started really researching out and trying to better understand what's going on with the opioid crisis and addiction. Um, it's staggering. I, I didn't know that much about it either. Uh, it was about 10 years ago, I think, and it, it was interesting because, as you mentioned, I, I used to work at the, in the Clinton White House, and I actually got a call from the former president who said uh, that he had two of his friends' sons had died of, uh, of drug overdoses, of opioid overdoses. And did I, did I know how big a problem this was? And I said, I, you know, I've heard it's a problem. I'm not sure how, how big. And he said, it's the number one cause of unintentional death in America today, more so than car accidents, more so than homicides, you know, all these things that you, you start to add up. And I started looking at the CDC data, and he was right. Number one cause of unintentional death in America today, drug overdoses, and the majority of them are opioids. So that, that you know, as far as, you know, you, we, we try and tackle the big problems in healthcare. You're, you're a cancer surgeon. You're taking care of the most complicated sort of cancers around. And here's this thing that, you know, we could be addressing in a meaningful way that would save far more lives than I think either one of us could do as, as practicing doctors. So that's, that's what really ignited it. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. So uh, as a physician, so you, let me just take step back for a second because I, I don't know how many people know, everybody knows you as truly as, as the face of medicine. You've, you are just that trusted face and, and voice that brings so many important things into our lives uh, puts it in the forefront so we can think about it and try to try to understand what's going on in our world and in our communities. Um, but what they don't maybe understand is is a little bit about you, about your passions, um, th that you're a practicing neurosurgeon yeah. still, that you literally do show up, see patients, operate still. It was operating yesterday. That's yeah. why he wasn't here on Monday. <laughs> um, but can you just tell us a little bit about your, I know you grew up in Michigan, just yeah. What brought you into medicine and, and how you got here? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, neither one of my parents are physicians, um, yeah. which was a bit unusual because most of my friends, you know, especially Indian descent, their parents were physicians. A lot of them came to this country as physicians. Um, my, my dad was a mathematician. My mom's an engineer. Uh, first woman ever hired as uh, a woman, first woman engineer hired at Ford Motor Company back in the mid-60s. Really? Yeah, quite, quite an accomplishment. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing, you know, just as an immigrant, still wearing a sari, not complete mastery of the English language, hearing a talk about Henry Ford when she's living uh, at that time in a refugee camp in, in eastern India and says, I want to I go do that one day, and she does it. So um, very inspiring, obviously. I have a younger brother. Um, I got into medicine. My, my mom's father got sick. I was 12 years old. He had a stroke. Uh, and I would go to the hospital with him. He was my favorite sort of, you know, grandparent, and we spent a lot of time together. And I think it was the first time I realized that the people taking care of him, that was their job. Right. I, I didn't realize that could be a profession, and I asked a lot of questions, and I think that sort of inspired me at that time to, to get into it. I, I love being a doctor. I, I have, the, I have the, the good fortune, I think, in some ways, of straddling two very interesting worlds in medicine and media. And I think when you straddle two worlds, regardless of what they are, um, you get both an insider's view and an outsider's view simultaneously. And it's very hard to do that, as much as you might anal you know, analytically sort of approach it. If you're actually in it, yeah. you truly get the insider's and outsider's view. And what I realize is that you know, I, I probably love being a doctor more than if I was just being a doctor. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, I see the sense of purpose in it. I see the, 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 uh, the impact I can have on people's lives, you know, all that. It's very, it's very, very gratifying. So as a journalist, I think it's informed my, my journalism, yeah. working in a hospital, talking to people every day, really understanding what's happening in their lives. I think being a journalist has also helped my medical career because I, I, I think I care more deeply about story I really want to know my patients. 
everybody has a story. I mean, that's, that's what we journalists, you know, that's, that's what's in our DNA. Yeah. And medicine is, I think, the most, has the most intimate stories of all. And so I think both these careers have sort of reinforced each other for me. Yeah, it is interesting. As a, as um, I feel fortunate as well as a practicing physician, as chief medical officer for Startup Health, yeah. I sort of straddle these two worlds of practicing medicine, seeing patients, and like you said, hearing these stories every day, um, and then being in the entrepreneurial world, in the business world, and being able to see how these worlds actually need to intersect yeah. and the importance of intersecting. And it really does, um, I think, make me obviously a better entrepreneur, but a better physician because you do, you, st you think outside the box in, I think, in both worlds a little bit. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I know this isn't the, the whole point of the discussion, about, but I just want to say something about that. I think when I got into journalism, I think that was part of it. I, I, I know many people in this room are entrepreneurs. You know, I, I think in medicine, there, there's a sense oftentimes that uh, things do move slowly, um, and maybe that's obvious, you know, for people who are in healthcare, the healthcare entrepreneurial world, and and for a lot of, t you know, that makes sense for a lot of reasons for it to move slowly. You want to approach things very methodically. You want to have a, a sort of preponderance of evidence before you make decisions. All of that, but at the same time, uh, it, it, there are things that we know to be true. There are ways that we can iterate to improve people's lives now. We all know that within institutionalized medicine. Yeah. And I think as a journalist to be able to, to, you know, sort of light a fire underneath some of those things, to, to make it clear for the mass public what was happening and let people see, you know, what was possible, I thought was really, really important. We, we, we can accelerate some of these things through obviously startup health, but also, you know, through journalism. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think by, by raising the awareness, you, we actually sort of force the change, right? Both on the medical community, but also letting patients know what's available yeah. and what they should be sort of requesting or insisting on. I'm saying, like, there's a better way. Let's do it that way. Right, absolutely. Interesting. So uh, I want to I talk about one of your, one of your um, passions, which is um, the opioid and addiction issue. Um, as I said, I, I thought I knew what was going on, um, but I really didn't. And as a physician, I, I, again, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because, you know, I wonder and I want to get into the conversation of, you know, are we partially to, to, to blame for this crisis? But just to throw out some statistics, I don't, I, I, I don't want to, to steal any of your thought. Roughly 21 to 29% of the patients prescribed opioids misuse them. 8 to 12% of these users develop a opioid dependence. 4 to 6% of all the opioid prescriptions that are sent out um, end up transitioning to heroin or a stronger, a, a stronger drug. And 80% of heroin users started on opioids. Staggering. We, we um, prescribe the vast majority of opioids in the world in this country. We're not even 5% of the world's population. And with regard to some of these classes of opioids, we're taking 80 to 90% of the world's supply. Um, there's, there's a lot of blame to go around, I think, no doubt. But, and I think one of the hardest pieces I had, or I wrote an op-ed some time ago about this. And I, you know, you, when you really st start to, to look at the data, but also be a little existential about this, you realize that um, you know, the medical community must shoulder a lot of the blame here. Yeah. Even though um, you, know, you and I went to medical school and training around the same time. I think I'm a little bit older than you are. But um, certainly look a little bit older than you. I'm, I'm yeah. older. Are you really? I am older. Wow. Yeah. You have such a youthful too, visage about too, you. Too, yeah, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> I was looking at you saying, what am I, what am I doing wrong? Um, but I, I, we, we, we were taught that you know, nobody should be in pain and that it was the fifth vital sign. You always asked about it, just like you would check heart rate and breathing and blood pressure. You would ask about pain and, and people would get opioids and there was no risk of addiction. That was sort of the conventional wisdom. I think, you know, we should have asked more questions. We should have, you know, we should have realized, okay, well, how do you know that? The data was based on primarily chronic cancer pain patients that were terminal. Yeah. And really, most of the studies were no longer than six months. So the idea of someone taking this for non-cancer pain for long periods of time, months and months, years and years, we just didn't know. We yeah. just didn't have the data. So nobody could have made those statements about the low risk of addiction, low risk of abuse. And now we see, obviously, what has happened with this. So I think the medical community certainly placed, you know, has to shoulder some of the blame. 
But I think also, you know, in the United States, we've had this culture of consumption for so long. There are countries around the world, I dare say, have the same levels of pain that we do, right? We have, we have, no, we have no sort of monopoly on pain. Uh, so how do these other countries treat it? They're treating it obviously in very different ways, pain, than we are. If we're taking 80 to 90% of this stuff in a country that's 4.7% of the world's population, what's the rest of the world doing right. getting by with? And, and I think that that, that that ended up being a big question that we started wanting to dig into as well. But the medical community, I think, in addition to many others, does have to, to yeah. you know, take some and, responsibility. And, and it's still an issue, right? Even as we talk about um, reimbursements and as as the satisfaction rates for physicians are now very public, physicians start to worry yeah. about, well, how am I gonna make sure I get a good you know, satisfaction rate? And the patient comes in and is asking whether it's antibiotics or opioids or things. There's, there's a really fine line that we have to balance. It, it, and it's still happening. I mean, you know, some, some of the reimbursement programs for hospitals now are based on the satisfaction scores from patients uh, for these physicians. Um, Many hospitals, I don't know how your hospital handles it. For, for us, for example, at the Emory Clinic, there are pain clinics now that are totally separate. So as, even as a neurosurgeon who takes care of patients who do have pain, we have the pain clinic manage all of their, yeah. you know, whether it be opioid or any other interventions with regard to pain. So there's a single doctor who manages that. But that can be frustrating too. It can take time to get into the pain clinic. They're very, very busy, as you might imagine. And, you know, Howard, in the midst of all this, are patients who have real pain. And, and you know, you, you've got to be very, very careful not to demonize them either because, you know, they, they, they have found relief uh, through these medications. They've been able to use them responsibly. Um, but but they, in, in, the, in the midst of all this, sometimes they run the risk of actually losing access. Yeah. And, and, and in addition, the, the pain is real. I think that part of it was also that we, we as you mentioned, really underestimated the addictive potential of these medicines, that we didn't do the proper studies maybe before we started prescribing all of this and actually sort of led them down the, the, the path without really understanding it. You can, you can develop physiological changes now. I learned this. We studied this as one of our films that we did. Ronnie Selig is here, who's my executive producer. We worked on this for, for some time. Um, but within five days, you can start to see physiological changes in the body. Right. So these are physical changes, meaning that once you remove the substance, in this case the opioid, you will see you know, accelerations in heart rate, blood pressure. People will start to develop early signs of withdrawal as early as five days. So, which post-surgery, we both know, especially in neurosurgery, it's very, very common to be in the hospital more than five days. That's right. And so we put them on the, the pain meds saying, well, we're just going to do this while you're in the surgery. And the funny thing is, and then we say, well, we're cutting everything off, go home. And then... Right what happens? They, they seek it out uh, in different ways, right? Yeah, like you said, I mean, you know, the, the patients who are then abruptly cut off of their opioids after being, you know, de becoming dependent on them will seek out cheaper and, frankly, more accessible opioids, which things like heroin. You know, heroin, these are the same ingredients. They all come from the poppy plant. Morphine, Percocet, Dilaudid, Hydrocodone, Oxycontin, Heroin, Fentanyl. It's all part of that same molecule, either synthesized or natural, but that same molecule. So it's no wonder then people will find some satisfaction for their withdrawal by, by seeking out one of these other meds. Right. And then, as you mentioned, all coming from the poppy plant, but all very different in their effects and in their strengths, right? And that's where we're getting into why the death toll, why this is such an epidemic right now. You, you, you hear these stories, uh, you know, in Ohio over the weekend, you know, you had 30 people who overdosed, you know, six of them died, whatever the numbers may be. What typically is happening in these situations is that you'll suddenly have an influx of a much more powerful synthetic um, they talk about fentanyl and they talk about carfentanyl. They're adding different molecules to essentially make this more powerful. Um, and, and people who are used, you know, frankly, addicts who are used to taking a certain dose think that they're taking that same dose and all of a sudden they get something that is 10 times more powerful or 100 times more powerful. And that's when you're seeing these overdose deaths. So it's, it's really frightening. And as you might imagine, you know, for people who, who, who are, you know, using this stuff, they're, they're worried every time they take something, they could be ending their lives. Right, right. And, and the scary thing is, and the thing I think really one of the take-homes is, this isn't just 
and, and, I, and I don't want to use this as a derogatory, this isn't just drug addicts. These are, these are teenagers, brothers, sisters, mothers, I mean, they, that maybe you're just doing this once in a while or trying it and dying from this. I, I, um, I, have, the, I have three kids, uh, you know, and I, this is a conversation I have with them all the time. And, you know, it's, and it's, it's, people talk about, okay, experimentation, I'm going to try something once, you know, or people are talking about it. In schools lately, it's been the jewel, you know, which is the, the vaping of things, right. not opioids, but, but you know, just the idea of experimentation and, and that mindset with regard to opioids, you can't do it anymore because the, 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 the types of dosing that we're talking about, the type of dose that might get into a high school nowadays in terms of, you know, uh, the potency of this, is, is, I mean, it's catastrophic. I mean, it's unlike anything you've ever prescribed in your entire career. It's probably greater than what you would have given 100 patients at any given time in your career. So it's, it's, really, it's really remarkable. And, and again, that part of it, that, that has to stop. I mean, th 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 these are, as you say, these are not addicts. These are people who are now maybe saying, what's the fuss all about? Let me, I'll try it once, and, and they're dying. And that, that, and that is happening tens of thousands of times a year. Yeah, it's amazing. So we touched, about, uh, touched on one of the reasons that, that, that this is becoming an epidemic or is an epidemic now. Um, do you think, is it just the access in the United States um, hmm. or in other countries that is sort of fueling this, this epidemic? What is it? I, th I think certainly th that's a big part of it. You know, we, they just basically flooded the United States with, with these opioids. Here was a place that uh, was willing to prescribe it. There were people that were making a lot of money on it. And it became a sophisticated thing where you could anticipate markets where opioid consumption would go up and opioid manufacturers and then subsequently heroin dealers would show up in these places even before the people realized that they were going to need it. That's how sophisticated this market became. What I find interesting, and, and, and we, we've been digging into this for this film for HBO for a couple of years. I got this um, documentary coming out. It's a film, uh, March 25th. It's called One Nation Under Stress. And the reason we decided to look at this was uh, because of a study that I read that came out of Princeton that I found quite startling. It's an, by a couple of economists, husband and wife, Angus, and Jean, Angus Deaton and Gene Case. And Typically, economist studies are, are kind, of, kind of dense, a little boring, but this one was fascinating, and the, the conclusion that they made was that if you look at every demographic in the developed world since World War II, so every demographic in the developed world since World War II, all of them have increased in life expectancy, except for one. And the only one that has not increased in life expectancy is the white working class in the United States. Flat even dropping, plateaued, dropping in some counties now across the country. It's a, it's a startling, startling yeah. thing. Again, think about Surprising. it. Surprising. dedicated our lives to trying to push back the frontiers and boundaries of life, and we're, we're actually going backwards. For the third year now in a row, the United States has actually dropped in life expectancy overall because of the impact of these, what are called deaths of despair among the white working class. Three years in a row, we've dropped in life expectancy. That hasn't happened since we've been in the midst of either a plague or a world war. So the, the, the impact, what is, what is causing these premature deaths in the white working class? Number one, opioid overdose. Number two, suicides, which have gone up 30% since 1999. And, and number three, liver cirrhosis, typically due to alcoholism. So deaths of despair being a very apt title. And we've been working on this, uh, Howard, for some, for some time. If we can, I'd just love to show you a little, a little clip of this. This is the first time we're actually showing this, where I spent some time with um, uh, somebody who's really been at the forefront of this, a, a coroner named Cyril Wecht, who, who talked me through some of what was happening. Oh, so, absolutely. And, uh, Michael, can we show that? So why are people taking this many opioids? Part of it's prescribing, part of it is becoming addicted. But why are so many people drinking? Why are so many people dying by suicide? We are operating in a time when we're very, very good at learning about and treating diseases. I think we are less good and less proficient at understanding health. Are we going to be remembered to, be, to have been physicians at a time when life expectancy actually dropped? I don't know. It's a little bit of an existential pain. Yeah. There's probably nobody better in the country 
that has seen the ups and downs of American culture from a medical perspective than Dr. Cyril Wecht. He's the guy that most of us turn to when we have questions about pathology, but he's also the guy that can help really solve a mystery. Hello, good doctor. Pleasure to see you. Anything exciting? I get the reports back from National Medical Services on three. I, I felt they were drug deaths, like, you know, and so on. All three were only fentanyl. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. So how have you been? You're looking well. Thank you. Did you hear the story when, when my office called you? I think it was around the time Prince had died. And, when Prince died, yeah, yeah. And then, and then somehow the, the message got miscommunicated that I had died? I said, you know, I cannot tell you how sad it is, but to whom do I submit my application to become the medical director of CNN? You know, I, I no sense wasting any fucking time, right? <laughs> I appreciate the pragmatism there. The morning did not last that long. <laughs> no, so thank you for your, your time. You know, you've, you've always taught me. You've taught me a lot. Not only did you teach me forensics, but I think you, you taught me a way of thinking about things, uh, you know, a methodical way of thinking about well, things. Well, that's very gracious of you. There's a few things I want to ask you in that regard. Uh, liver cirrhosis, drug overdose, mainly opioids, and suicide. They are called deaths of despair, and it seems to be the symptom of an underlying problem as opposed to the problem itself. What is your sentiment in that regard? I think what we're looking at is an increasingly stressed society. I think a society in which the pressures become greater and greater in, in all respects, uh, making a living, depersonalization of society, the roboticization of society, families breaking up, splitting off. These are all things that I think play a role in leading to this stressful society that we have. And then you have changes on the medical side, the idea that people should not have to suffer. Oh, we're going to take care of it. And it's very easy. Mm -hmm. You're going to write the prescription. It seems to be that we are self-medicating. We are 4.7% of the world's population. We take 80 to 90% of the world's opioids. I'm pretty sure we don't have 80 to 90% of the world's pain in this country. How about when I'm looking at a 62-year-old woman lying on the table, and, you know, she's perfectly healthy looking. And I'm thinking, my God, this could be, you know, somebody's mother. This could be somebody's grandmother. And most Americans, I think, do not yet understand it's proportionately white between 35 to 55. I mean, do you think there should be this idea of stress being an actual diagnosis? Because it seems like this very nebulous term. You have A is the immediate cause of death. And then you have another box of contributing causes. That is certainly where stress should be listed. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's, um, it, we're, we're, we're talking about something that's happening in real time. You know, I think people will look back on this time in our history and we'll get a little bit of a reflection of, of how we were approaching this issue, you know, through people like Cyril. But that's... Um, partly why we wanted to do this. One thing I, I just want to say quickly, because stress, again, as I said, is a nebulous term, but when you look at the white working class and, and the population that's been predominantly affected here as we get into this, this film, it, it's worth remembering that it, it's hard to define stress sometimes, but these were the sons and daughters of the greatest generation, right? They, are the, they, were, they were supposed to inherit the earth. Yeah. They were supposed to inherit the United States for certain, and instead they found jobs going elsewhere. They found themselves obviously dying at faster rates, not living up to the dreams of their, of their parents. And, and that, that dashed expectation from an evolutionary biology standpoint turns out to be incredibly stressful. And, and so dashed expectations may be fueling the deaths of desperation, which may be causing, you know, the opioid, the, the suicide, the, the, the liver cirrhosis. I don't want to overly simplify, but, you know, as we look for these unifying theories, that's one of them that, that I think really came to the, came to the top. Yeah. And it really is um, a unifying theory of, because all three of those, right, are really interrelated into relationship, relationship with yourself, relationship with others, and um, how if you're, if you're not able to 
have some way of relieving or releasing some of this stress, whether it's through exercise, through talking, through therapy, whatever, you're going to find some way of, of, of sort of dealing with it. Yeah. I mean, you, we like the quick fix. We like the immediate sort of relief, even if we know that it's toxic and doesn't last very long. You know, like you, I've had the, the privilege of getting to know Dean Ornish over the years. And I think Dean is here probably, but the, the, I mean, the, the, the types of interventions that people like Dean talk about, take, they take time and they take, frankly, someone like Dean to actually be a champion of them. Um, they're not a trillion dollar opioid industry, you know? They're, they're about love and connection and, and being social with people. Uh, frankly, things that in the rest of the world, including the developed world, uh, people have done for a long time, we know that they work and they're not taken nearly the, the, the amount of opioids that we're taking, or they're not drinking, they don't have the same suicide rates. So, uh, suicide's gone up 30% in this country since 1999. Yeah, Think about a, that. It's interesting, Dean mentioned this morning, we, did, we had a great talk with him uh, and Anne, um, but he mentioned that one of the changes as, as the United States developed is we've gotten rid of multi-generational family, right. you know, family homes, um, where in, in other countries it's a little bit more common, but that being one of the reasons is because you don't have this outlet in these relationships through multiple generations. Right, yeah. We wanted to live with my parents. My wife absolutely vetoed that. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. thought that, that would be far more toxic than Yeah, that. yeah, well, <laughs> abs absolutely. Um, so as we talk about um, addiction, and we said we, we start talking about some of the different causes uh, of this epidemic, where do you see technology fit, fitting in to it? Is this just a, hey, we got to fix our relationships and we have to stop prescribing? Well, you know, I, th I think what's interesting is I think from, a, from a, the opioid thing in particular, I think most of the reporting and even if you look at a lot of the, the, the scientific articles that are written are really looking at this from a social, cultural sort of prescribing standpoint. W one of the things that I think bears mentioning, and again, you, you and I have lived through this, is that we haven't had many other options in terms of actually treating people's pain, uh, you know, in a way that um, would not require opioids. I mean, there are other things out there, non-narcotic-based therapies, um, non-invasive therapies, whatever they may be. I think that the, the idea that there's going to be some, some significant innovation with regard to, A, how we define it, pain, mm -hmm. how we measure it, it's still very, very subjective in terms of how we measure it, and how we treat it, I think is fascinating. I, th there was a story that we've been sort of looking at a little bit that focuses on a type of a type of technology called DREAD. I don't know if anybody in the room is familiar with that, but basically it stands for Designer Receptors Enabled by Activated Designer Drugs, DREAD. And, and think of it like this. You have these pain receptors in your body. Think of that like the end of a train. Now you take another receptor, something that you create genetically, and create a new caboose for the train. Okay, so now you've essentially created a new receptor for that pain. And in order to actually activate that, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, you could, you could create a molecule or use an existing molecule that is relatively inert, doesn't do much in terms of side effects in the body, but, but actually will target that particular receptor and help treat pain without side effects. That is a, that is a genetic, that is a chemogenetic sort of innovation that could be huge with regard to, to pain. And also help us get a better sense of actually how to, how to assess pain as well by looking at how upregulated these receptors are. That's just an example. But I think, you know, when, when you have something like this that's been such a problem for so long and you say, well, what do, what do people really do then if they are suffering from chronic pain? We keep telling them that, look, opioids can be very effective, you know, for, for pain, uh, but you can't take them for too long, but then they have chronic pain, they're going to live a long time. What do they do? Why haven't we innovated more in this area? Yeah. Uh, I think part of the reason is obvious is that there's been just so much money in that opioid area that that's been, you know, a big, big umbrella for a lot of people in the pain world to, to get under for a long time. But now you're starting to see these pockets of innovation uh, in terms of assessing, in terms of treating, in terms of thinking about pain in totally, totally different ways. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, besides the big money of it, it was a simple fix, right? We want to do things quickly and yeah, you take a pill, it's going to be better. Um, first off, the dread, it's an amazing, the potential there is, is mind boggling because if you could, uh, quell somebody's pain without giving them the side effects of the, the, right. the opioids, 
what a huge thing. The other thing that you mentioned, um, how, do we, how do we measure pain? Pain is so subjective, and yes. we, we know from treating patients, you can do the exact same thing to 10 different pa patients, and they're gonna have 10 different replies on how uncomfortable it is. Some right. people going, that ah, was right. one out of 10, and other people saying, that was an 11 out of 10. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 and usually men do worse, by the way, which is At true. One hundred percent. Women tolerate women, better. Yeah, women are the, much stronger. The, and just it's, put it's it out. True. There. It's, the, um, but the, but the, I think that's a really uh, the idea of being able to be empathetic, objectively about one's pain, about a patient's pain, a colleague, a loved one, whoever's pain, and 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 the idea that there are. There are ways to maybe get a sense of, of the true impact on someone's brain in terms of their brain waves, what is actually being transmitted to the brain from a toxic stimuli, you know, wh whatever it might be, is becoming increasingly real. But I am amazed, um, in, you know, as we talk about innovation, that we have innovated so well in so many different areas. Oftentimes, these innovations come, frankly, without a clear-cut problem that they're trying to solve, yeah. right? Here is a clear-cut problem. One of the biggest social, cultural, medical problems of our time causes more unintentional death than anything else, and there, 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 I think there should be incredible innovation around all aspects of this, measuring it as a as a as a starting thing, which I, I don't think would be that hard to do. I mean, I'm not going to figure it out with you right here on the stage, but I yeah. bet you if we sat down, we could probably figure out, you know, reasonable ways that are that are accessible to people to measure pain to yeah. really get an objective measurement of their pain and then figure out what really works for treating it. Uh, and, and, and those therapeutics may be things that we haven't even thought of yet. Speaking of, of different therapies, um, and we are in San Francisco, in California, um, medical marijuana has yeah. become a, you know, a hot topic. People are talking about it. People are trying to understand it better. Does that have a role in opioid addiction? I, I, I think it does. I, I really do. You know, I, I've, um, this is another topic that I've been reporting on for some time, and you know, we've, done, we've done several films on this, and the last one that we did was specifically looking at what is happening with opioids and this interplay between opioids and, and cannabis. First of all, I will say that it's hard to get the randomized clinical trial that, again, everybody wants, and understandably so, in a, in a place where the substance that you're trying to test is also illegal at the federal level. Yeah very hard to get those, that sort of data. So you start to look at clues, for example, in states where you had medical marijuana legislation and you had functioning dispensaries, you saw several things start to happen. You saw that opioid prescription rates went down. You saw that opioid usage went down, perhaps understandably. And most importantly, you saw that opioid overdose rates went down by 23%, uh, for example, in Colorado. Very, really significant. So we started to really dig into that, like why would that be, how would this work? And I think there's, there's sort of three things, I'll just tell you quickly. One is that could cannabis be used instead of opioids initially for treatment of pain? And you find that there's, there's actually pretty good data now from, from you know, big trials, most of them again outside the United States, looking at the use of cannabis for pain. And you find that it can be very effective, especially for what's called neuropathic pain, which is a sort of nerve pain. Two is that if you're on opioids trying to get off, you're going to withdraw, and that's awful. I mean, I've seen this. It's like it, it, you, you feel like you have a, the worst flu of your life. Everything hurts. You become hyper-anxious. Your heart rate accelerates. You're sweating. Withdrawal from opioids is a, is a miserable experience, something nobody wants to go through, which is why people will then seek out other, other drugs. Much in the way that, that cannabis can help treat the symptoms of, of side effects from chemotherapy, you find that cannabis can also help treat the withdrawal effects from, from opioids. And finally, and this is the most interesting to me, I think, from a neuroscience perspective, is that what happens? Why does someone become an addict, right? It's not really, I think what the data is showing is that people, there may be people who are predisposed to this, but with regard to opioids, it seems to affect a part of your brain in, in, in the frontal cortex, an area that I, I guess best be described as, as reducing your perception of harm. Okay. You don't perceive things as harmful. You're willing to take so risks you take, as a result. you take the opioids and that is suppressed. So you just, you're like, eh. So you keep taking it. People say it's bad, Some but you of the don't keep doing it. Yeah, I don't, I don't perceive the harm. Harm perception is, is affected. And, and, and what you find is that CBD, which is a component of cannabis, 
a non-psychoactive component can actually help heal that part of the brain. It can help correct what's known as the glutamate transmitter system in that part of the brain. There's very few things that can do that. CBD can do that. If you continue to take opioids, even as agonist therapy, which can be effective, suboxone, buprenorphine, things like that, they can be very effective. But the problem is that people recur often because that harm reduction part of the brain is not healed if you continue to take opioids. So do I think cannabis and CBD can have an impact? I think it can have a, a, real, a real impact. And, and frankly, I think it's a, a much less toxic drug. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't overdose from it. Um, if you're taking the CBD, it's not even psychoactive. I mean, it's, it's, um, I think it's a pretty remarkable potential solution that's been around for a long time. But yeah. again, it takes, uh, takes people... I like, was going to say, I think several years ago during the debate, I heard there was, there was something that I, that I saw that said how many, um, how many uh, overdose, death overdoses from cannabis have there been? And there were literally... It's really zero. I yeah, mean, zero. It, the, the thing is that, you know, it, it, why does someone overdose and die? It's typically because whatever the, the, the drug or the molecule specifically is, is affecting the brain stem and is affecting one's ability to drive their own breathing. So someone who dies of an opiate overdose, they are okay if they are awake. They, are, they breathe, they think to breathe. When you go to sleep and you've had your brain stem affected by the opiates, your drive to breathe may, may go away. And that's why people will overdose and die in their sleep. Cannabis doesn't affect that part of the brain stem. So just from a physiological standpoint, you, you, you don't overdose and, and die from this. People can have bad reactions to it. People may have terrible side effects. You know, I'm not condoning this, uh, you know, but as a medicine, I think it's potentially really effective, especially against this, this new problem. Are we doing enough um, as a society with, so you said part of, the, part of the issue with the deaths is the suppression of, of the breathing, and we know that there is a reversal agent. Are we doing enough to make sure that that is available and in places, whether public place should be pretty much available in every public space, shouldn't it? Yeah, you know, um, I'll tell you, this is, so Narcan is yep. what you're talking about, naloxone. Uh, this, this was one of the interesting sort of um, tale for me as a medical journalist, because I think, you know, especially as a surgeon, and I think, you know, maybe you feel the same way. I mean, we're, we're used to basically finding things, and if there's something that works, you know, really getting behind it and making sure that it's, it's used and, and, and can help people. Narcan is one of those things. I mean, the woman that you saw briefly in the video, she was someone who was in the throes of a heroin overdose, would have likely died, got two shots of Narcan, and is, you know, and survived and is, is, is still doing well. Um, what, what critics will argue, and, and, and it's worth hearing the whole debate, it, and it's not just about Narcan but other things, is that at what point does something become uh, a tool that actually uh, empowers more drug use? Does it become a safety net where people say, well, now we have the Narcan, therefore we don't need to worry about overdosing and dying. I can take these opioids you know, at will now because I'm not worried about that. People raise these same arguments around harm reduction with regard to needle exchanges, for example. We're gonna use needle exchanges to decrease the rates of infectious disease, but is that gonna be sort of a green light to drug users saying, hey, I'm not gonna you know, get an infectious disease now. What's the problem? I, I um, personally, I think to your question, I think Narcan should be widely available. We have people dying right now, and nobody obviously wants to die of this. We have something, a tool that can work. And you are seeing cities across America that are making it more widely available. Leanna Wen, who used to be the, Boston, I'm sorry, the Baltimore City Health Commissioner, what she did, very interestingly, when she was uh, health commissioner, was basically wrote a blanket prescription for every pharmacy in Baltimore. So anybody that went into to a Baltimore pharmacy could get Narcan, with, the, with the, the health commissioner's signature on a prescription. So that's how she sort of combated it. But it's still very, very patchwork. It is, it's, and it's a shame because it really is a, and I don't want to say an easy solution, but it is a nice guard because these are generally accidental overdoses. People don't know that the, right. the, 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 the drug that they happen to be taking might have fentanyl in it, and the next thing you know, innocent people are dying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think, I think what is driving a lot of this, and, and, and again, it's a, it's a more philosophical question that perhaps spurns ideas around innovation, but 
you know, we still think of this very much as a, as a moral failure for people when they do this. There's a lot of stigma around this, um, certainly. I think when I say, and I explain even that this is a brain disease, we know that it's a brain disease. I can show you in the brain yeah. which part of the brain has been diseased, and I can show you what that part of the brain does. And here's why that leads to addiction and why that cycle of addiction is thus hard to break. Um, it doesn't still always, always resonate. And I think that if you really, if you're serious about it as a medical community or just a community as a whole of, of treating addiction, again, these drug overdoses being number one cause of unintentional death in America, uh, then, then if you really truly explain it from a medical standpoint, then I think everything else sort of follows. Narcan becomes less objectionable. The idea that you're going to put research into addiction funding. Only 10% of people right now who need addiction treatment are getting it in the United States. Again, 10%. 10%. So, you know, talk about low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Places where you can go out, leave the doors today and make a huge impact. You know, there, there, there's an example. But I think the reason that is, is because of the stigma, because of the perception still that this is more a moral failure than a brain disease. And I think that that causes all these sort of uh, strange, you know, reactions to this problem. So, so how do we fix it? And, that, and I think that's also a, a common theme in mental health, right? The stigma of mental health. It's one of the things we um, are trying to approach yes. with, with our mental health moonshot, too, is how do you change that stigma? So as we, you know, we, we brought you here, and I'm so excited, you know, the work that you've done in raising the awareness um, for opioids and addiction, um, and frankly, so many different uh, medical topics, we wanted to bring you here also to give you the platform. So just like you challenged me, and you said, Dr. Krein, what can, what can you and Startup Health do? I'm going to challenge you to come up with some solutions. Um, we're here in a room of entrepreneurs, people who think outside the box, investors, um, payers, providers. Um, we're uh, online on a live feed. What, what can you challenge the world and, and this community to do? <laughs> um, it's, it's, a real, it's a real opportunity, a real honor to, to be able to, to speak to a group like this. I mean, I... I First of all, I, I've always been somebody who, who um, people think, look, I want to transform healthcare. I want to do you know something big within healthcare. I think being able to first define a problem really, really clearly, and then figure out uh, how best to address it's important. And I think the opioid one is is one that sort of fits that criteria. It is a well-defined problem that you know we have not had a lot of innovation around. I think that the 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 biggest goals I think going forward. One is that you're starting to see policy changes already with regard to prescription rates, but I think the biggest goals going forward, which I find very exciting, are this idea of can we finally take something that has been as obscure and subjective and vaguely described as pain and really start to, to define it, to, to be able to measure it objectively. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, remarkable to me that we haven't done more of that already. There are some people who are, who are starting to get into this space, looking at how your brain waves change in response to different stimuli, but to really make that something that is part of how we take care of patients. It is, it is why people come to the doctor, it is why people uh, suffer, it is why people have bad relationships, is typically there's some sort of pain that's driving that. I think then the idea, uh, whether it's dread or whether it's something else, to finally come up from this country that has been so adversely affected by the opioid epidemic to come out with new strategies uh, to treat pain, I think um, would, would be a place where, where I would probably spend a lot of time if I, was in, if, I was in, if I was an innovator and an entrepreneur. I would really think about how, how does pain really work in the body? How, why have we always treated it with this gigantic sledgehammer are there ways to really start to uh, address people's pain syndromes in a much less toxic, much more effective way? I think um, it would save lives and improve countless lives as well. Do you think, when we talk a lot about what's going on in America, do you think that these, these, these treatments, these, um, these transitory um, management um, mechanisms will be sort of able to be used across the the globe too. Yeah, I, I, I think. And do you think what what do you think we can learn from other countries? Because they're clearly doing it a little bit better. We can definitely learn a lot from 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 other countries. I mean, you know, I, I think that um, many of these other countries have not 
been forced to innovate because they've never really had the same opioid problem as we do. I, I spent a lot of time in Turkey this past summer. Turkey is the largest producer of licit or legal opium in the world. Most of the pills, you know, not, not heroin, but most of the pills and things like that are coming from poppy that is grown in, in Avion, uh, uh, Turkey, which, which actually translated means land of opium. And, and they export 96 to 97% of it. So, they, so, so they're the world's biggest producer, and then they export it. They export it, most of it to this country, sadly. Crazy. But, but, but to your point, there are countries like that uh, around the world that are using all sorts of different therapies. I mean, I, when I was there, and it's going to sound a little you know, off the beaten path, but one of the big things that is happening in Turkey now, and it's being practiced in hospitals, is what's called apitherapy, which is essentially bee sting therapy. And they've come under this, this belief that ultimately pain is really being driven by the underlying amount of inflammation that you have in your body that is then uh, triggered and made worse by something. It could be a toxic stimuli, it could be a food you ate, it could be whatever. Yep. Something in the environment now takes that baseline level of inflammation that you have and amplifies it. Uh, what are things that can be used to lower your baseline rates of inflammation? Again, something that Dean Ornish talks about, but the, the, the idea that that is an underlying problem when it comes to pain as well, I think is very real. And, and again, they have great success rates with treating pain in these ways that we might find strange, and, but we have just never really thought about. Right, strange. Well, alternative therapies, right? America is sort of slow sometimes to, to, to accept them, right. but... You know, they, they work, whether it's acupuncture, um, meditation, spirituality, things like that. They're finally, I think, catching on and, uh, and sort of becoming more mainstream. I think that's the most exciting thing that I've seen now probably in almost 20 years of, of living these two worlds between medicine and media is, you know, you tell the stories of people in this country and people want to take better care of themselves. They, 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 they really do. There's been a dissatisfaction at times with, with mainstream medicine. I think some of it very understandable, you know, I mean, it's become a political debate often. Um, but w when you tell people that, look, um, we're not just talk talking about disease, disease detection and treatment. We're not even just talking about wellness and prevention. We're talking about human optimization here. Yes. We're saying that no matter where you are in your life today, whether you just won your age group for a triathlon or you're in the throes of chronic disease, uh, you can be better tomorrow. You can be better, you can be stronger, faster, better husband, better wife, better son, better daughter, whatever it might be, um, because we're not nearly optimized enough. And I think part of the reason we don't feel that way is because of this, these, these levels of inflammation and, and you know, uh, due to toxic stress, environmental triggers, whatever they may be in our bodies. Yeah, and I was going to say these levels of inflammation, but also as Dean had pointed out, um, you know, we have to decrease the stress levels. We have to... Um, exercise, which which de definitely helps us blow off a little bit of steam. We have to love more too, right? We yeah. Have to, we have to sort of. It, it, it's a, it's a little bit hokey, but we have to love more. You have to. You got two surgeons up here talking about love. No, right? right? <laughs> You'll never see this uh, any anywhere else. Everyone well, gives I, it a bad bad reputation. I, I, some people have been raising their hands. Okay, if we could take mm -hmm. a, just a question or two. Ah. Yeah. Esther Dyson. Um, Hi. Hi, Sanjay. I'm just Can curious. you just uh, inter introduce um, yourself? So just I, wor I work in Wellville, which is a nonprofit tenure project. And I'm just, it's just sort of like talking about measles without talking about the vaccines. Does your movie talk about adverse childhood experiences at all and the, the people's vulnerability? You sort of mentioned stress, but it's not just the stress of the adults, it's childhood trauma. Sure. Yeah, we, 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 we do. We, we do talk about um, adverse childhood experiences, and we do follow a couple people along to try and really uh, try and get at, you know, what might be driving their... So I, you know, I mentioned, I didn't want to overly simplify with regard to deaths of despair, with regard to the existential problem of dashed expectations. It was something that we found novel, and they talked a lot about in, in this particular paper with regard to these, these, this recent uptick in, in suicide and opioid overdose. But yes, um, it's, I hope you watch it. I'd really be curious to see what you, what you think when, when you watch it. But um, no question, there's a lot of things that are, that are fueling that. Anybody right. else? Yes. Yep. There you go. Hi, my name is uh, Luis Montes. I work for Casamba EMR company, but I'm a physical therapist by, by background, and I guess I just want to put a quick plug-in for my profession here because 
I, I do think that we're considerably underutilized in this whole uh, pain management scheme. And I think as physical therapists, we can really prescribe the right exercises and manual therapies and electrotherapies to really help with pain management. And I would encourage you know, every physician out there, you know, before prescribed medication, to think about physical therapy when it's appropriate because we can really help. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. You, I'm just curious, have you, have you found that with, with everything that's happening with opioids, have, have you seen more patients? Are you getting more referrals? Certainly, the American Physical Therapy Association um, is, um, is leading these as well, and we have seen um, a lot more reception um, and a lot more patients. I don't want to say a lot more, but at least an uptick in uh, patients that are coming to therapy for pain management control, whether it's acute or chronic pain. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to just step back to you had mentioned, you know, at at, uh, at Grady that you now use pain management yeah. services more. I was going to say we started that at Jefferson as well, um, which this is really, I think, a change uh, over when as we trained and 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 when we first started practicing, um, because there was no coordinated effort, right. a for the pain, and there was no way to monitor. And finally, in the United States, we're having centralized databases that say, hey. This patient just got three scripts from three other people in the last 24 hours or the last I know. two weeks. Yeah. It's hard to believe that we actually, up until very recently, had none of that. I feel like we turned a, a really blind eye to this at, at every aspect. You know, the, the idea that people would, would go to multiple pharmacies, multiple doctors, whatever it may be, just didn't seem reasonable. And, and if they were doing it, what was the problem, right? This stuff wasn't addictive. It wasn't going to cause problems. It's been a big game of catch-up since then. So... Hello. Oh, hey. Hey. I was actually at the conference when that happened uh, with the family. Hey, I, and I just want to say, David is, is one of the results of, our, uh, of your <laughs> challenge. Uh, oh, he yes. is the CEO of In Recovery, which, is oh, a, fantastic. which right. specifically deals with addiction. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank Good you. Good to see you again, Sanjay. And, you too, David. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that we're doing this with, with Startup Health, first of all. But uh, one thing that I, I would like to challenge you, Sanjay, as well, is to, and, and ask maybe if this is in the film, is that recovery is possible. And there's too much focus in the media on death, and I think that causes a lot of the stigma as well. And if we yeah. focus more on recovery, on the fact that people do get better, yeah. you know, as a recovering addict myself, and you know, I found it in recovery as a result of my own addiction, uh, I would like to challenge you as well as, as the media to focus more on recovery and, and, give, and give more and more of a shining light that there is hope. But I, you know, yes, really good point, and you know. I, I kind of, I kind of wish both the Esther's question and yours, David, as well. I wish, I wish I could show you the film now. I can't, but. Yeah. But oh, you can, Ronnie. Uh, <laughs> Ronnie, can. Yeah, we won't tell. The HBO, they're very. <laughs> but the, um, we we did. I, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit. I mean, and I, I'll tell you as a, as a journalist as well. You know, I think that we have found most effective when we do not simply define, redefine, and define once again the problems. I, I think it's very hard to to galvanize movements or power or whatever behind things when you're simply defining problems. You show people that there are effective strategies. There is a way out. We saw this even with HIV AIDS. It was, we see this with, with childhood hunger in East Africa. When you just simply show the problems, people kind of tune out to it after a while. You actually show people coming out the other side and, and the way that they got there um, it, it, it sticks in, in, in people's and in our viewers' minds in a different way, and I think it makes them much more likely to be compelled, connected, feel compassionate, whatever it may be, you know, to, to do something about this. So I'm really glad you brought that point yeah, up. I'm really glad, I'm glad to see that, and you have our commitment at Startup Health to, to do our best with this. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah. One more, while, while we're getting, getting you the mic, so, speaking of recovery, and you traveled around the world, you really have, have focused, the, focused the spotlight on this very heavy, sad thing. Um, what, what stories of inspiration come out of this? You know, you know, I think most of the stories that I do actually um, focus on things that I find very inspiring. Um, I, I think people who, who you know, may have had something happen to them and were able to turn their lives around in some way, but also cultures. You know, um, I, I, one of my favorite stories I did recently, and this is probably going to air sometime over the summer, I think Ronnie probably knows better than I do, but the, um, I, I, I spent a, 
bunch of time going and, and visiting several countries around the world and really embedding myself in their, in their healthcare systems to see how their healthcare systems really worked. I mean, people talk about this, you know, and write about it in journals like The Economist and things like that, but to actually live it was totally different. One of the places I went, I don't know if I told you about this, Howard, I, I went and basically embedded it with an indigenous tribe in, in Bolivia in the Amazon rainforest called the Chimane tribe the Chimane indigenous tribe. And the Is that reason- where you got all your tattoos? That's right, <laughs> right. I cover that up, okay. yeah, yes. The, um, the Chimane indigenous tribe, and it was like crazy to get there. And the reason I wanted to go visit them was because there was this article in the Lance, a small one, that basically said that this community of people seemed to have no evidence of heart disease at all. No evidence of heart disease. Kind of incredible right? We spend a billion dollars a day in the United States on heart disease. And here you have a, a tribe living in the middle of the rainforest where the most mechanical thing that I saw was the pulley for a well, and they have no heart disease. It's a longer story in terms of how they figured this out, and maybe more than we have time for, but just take my word for it. They have no evidence of heart disease. So I wanted to, to just go and understand their lives. Yeah. And, and Selfishly, in part, you know. I was going to say, I wish I, have I could a, come. I have a history of heart disease in my family. I wanted to learn, and, and, and it was just fascinating to see. And and there, there's a lot to it. I mean, the, if you take the big three, you know, the, the the diet, the rest, the exercise. You know, in terms of exercise, what you find, and and it's true of many indigenous cultures, is that they are active, but they're not intensely active. Right. We found that because we tracked this, they walk about 17,000 steps a day. They hardly ever run. Even when, they're, even when they're hunting, they tend to outlast their prey, not outrun their prey. They track them. They hardly ever sit. They're always standing or they're lying. And they sleep. When you're awake, you stand. And we, we saw this paper subsequently that found that, you know, people say sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. And, and um, you've heard this as you're all sitting for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, the idea that, that from an evolutionary standpoint, we only sat as human beings when we got old and we were ready to die. And you find that people who sit a lot actually release these, these chemicals into our body that actually decrease our body's own natural protection devices. So it's almost like a self-destruct button. When you start to sit a lot, it's like you're telling yourself, hey, you know what? My time here is done. Yeah. And you find in these long-lived, disease-free cultures, they simply don't sit a lot. And there's a mechanism for that in terms of what they eat, um, and Dean Ornish will love this again, but yeah. 70% of what people who are true hunter-gatherers, who are living off the grid, who have no sort of outside influences, 70% of what they eat is carbs. And un really? Unprocessed carbs. Because if you're a hunter-gatherer, farming food is like putting money in the bank. Yeah. You may have bad hunting days, bad fishing days, but if you farm cassava, plantains, whatever it may be, you're getting healthy carbs into your diet. So 70% carbs, 15% protein, 15% fat. They rest a lot. You know, I, I, I put a little tent in the middle of their encampment. Um, you, you hear the, you hear, without devices to look at, people start to sleep. The, you hear the snoring about 9, 10 o'clock at night, and then people wake up to the call and answer of the rooster. They're getting about nine hours of sleep a night. So it was kind of remarkable and very inspiring to see this, this culture and how they were able to combat heart disease. I'll tell you one other thing about them, because you, you may be thinking, okay, I can do all that, and that seems pretty reasonable sleep more, eat better, exercise, right? Um, so far, it sounds like Dean's book. <laughs> right, exactly. Dean's onto something here, I think. The, but the thing that was sort of a little bit the secret sauce that Dean may or may not agree with was, was the vast majority of the people who are part of the Chimani tribe also live their entire lives with chronic parasitic infection. You get a parasitic infection, usually hookworm, roundworm, giardia, something very early in life. You typically get a few days of illness. If that happens in the United States or the developed world, you treat that aggressively, right? Yeah. But you know, most of our existence, again, as humans, we did co-evolve with these parasites. Parasites were part of us. We were part of that parasitic world. And the idea that our immune systems, again, either ignite or worsen so many of the diseases that we're talking about, uh, and that parasites could somehow be an immune modulator, giving our immune system something else to focus on besides turning their attention inward, could be real. So the idea that you, you eat right, you exercise, you, you sleep better, and you have a parasitic infection. Yeah. Could be, yes. See, and I think if you're gonna, if anyone's gonna take this and like create the new like 
measurement. I would, I, my only suggestion was don't call it a parasite. Yeah, Think yeah. of a different name. That, that, that would actually... I was say, but there is something to say, right? Autoimmune disease is on a rise. Like, why is this? Why, why in, 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 a, in, a, in a country where we strive to take such good care of ourselves and try to, like you said, almost sterilize our bodies that, uh, that, that we're having these, these different issues that are coming up? I, th I think that the, the thing that the, the folks in Bolivia taught me in the subsequent interviews that we did with scientists is that, you know, in an effort to be hypersterile, an effort to live in these self-imposed hygienic bubbles, we may have been doing more harm to our bodies than we realized. Our immune systems, you know, they exist, they've existed, you know, throughout our existence, and, they, and the reason was to, to, to basically fight off whatever infections, you know, and outside influences like the parasites that they, they could when they when we're when we're so hygienic the immune system may be actually starting to turn its attention inward and these inflammatory cell levels may be rising. I deal with this in my own family with my wife. She she suffers from autoimmune disease and we're constantly on this journey to try and figure out what is causing inflammation levels to rise, what is her baseline level of inflammation, how do we tamp these things down? It is it is difficult, but if you take it as a class Autoimmune diseases are the most common diseases in America. Graves disease, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, all these things in aggregate uh, have, are the largest and they've been increasing uh, for some time now. Yeah, and, and there's so much work to do. Now we know maybe, maybe just a parasite. Could be the parasite. Yeah, just, exactly. Just call, exactly. Call it something else, a biocyte well, or something. Or, yeah, help. well, I have to say, um, first off, what, what an amazing, amazing conversation <laughs> it was to have you here. On, on a personal note, I, I mean, truly, we've been, we've been friends for, for a few years now, but um, I feel like I've known you, as most people probably here do, you feel like you know Sanjay, right? <laughs> he's, he's like, he's, a, he's our friend. He's our old friend Sanjay. Just, uh, just the, um, who I am. But you really, you've, you've changed the way, for me personally, I'm sure for the world, but for me personally, uh, I look at the world. I look at... Um, the issues that go around, um, yeah, both in my um, my community, my country, but really globally. Wow, and you. you've opened my eyes. You've taught me how to look at things um, objectively, fairly, and with an open mind. And uh, I'm excited to see what you do, uh, you know, with the with the, with the documentary, and just over the next few years. And I can't thank you for being part of our. Oh my lives. God, that means so much. Thank you very much, Howard. I really appreciate that. Thank you.